Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I am Monish Rath here at Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I'm grateful to all of you for, for joining us today. This is the final OSHA 3030 of the calendar year, and it is uh, probably somewhere around the 40th episode of the OSHA 3030. This is a webinar and a podcast that we've been doing for a little over three years. And uh, it's a, uh, what we do is we cover OSHA law developments uh, that have happened in the recent past, uh, and we try and do this about every 30 days, and we try and cover it in about uh, 30 minutes so that you can get back on with your day. We also always try and finish off with some practical takeaway items. Uh, and this program is free to you, but the only thing we ask is that when you receive an email invitation for an OSHA 3030 episode, uh, to forward it on to your to your colleagues within your organization, uh, including at your office of general counsel, or to colleagues at organizations across the way, so that we can spread the good word about the program, uh, because new new enrollees or new members of our community are the lifeblood of the program. Uh, after this program is over, we'll post this up to our website at khlaw.com. And uh, it will also be available as a podcast, probably locatable on one of your favorite podcast sites, including, uh, I believe, iTunes. So with that said, let's get going. Uh, we'll put the phone number up for those of you who have logged in but have not yet gotten the sound. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'm Monish Rath here at Calvin Heckman. More information about me can be found at our website, khlaw.com. And I'm joined today by my friend Larry Halperin, who's also a partner here at Keller and Heckman, uh, who has been practicing OSHA law, representing organizations, employers uh, around the country, uh, around the world, uh, for several decades, and is one of the deans of OSHA law anywhere in the country. And I'm, so I'm grateful that I'm, I'm joined today by Larry. Larry, welcome, and thank you very much. Thank you, Monish. It's a pleasure. So, Larry, we have a great topic today. What we're talking about is a decision that came out uh, that essentially denied the employer industry a, a preliminary injunction that it had sought, and this comes out of uh, federal court in Texas, and the employer community had sought a preliminary injunction against a rule that's come out by OSHA in the um, record-keeping rule under Section 1904, but essentially OSHA has opined that it's discriminatory uh, to employees if, they, if the employer has a policy for incentive programs for safety and health track records or drug testing policies that are inhibitory in any way or dissuasive, I'll say, uh, against filing, a, filing an entry uh, in the employer's record-keeping uh, log, the injury and illness record-keeping log. So we'll talk about that rule, just give some backgrounding. We're going to background what the requirements are for seeking and obtaining a preliminary injunction, and then what the court said in this decision. And uh, as we always do, we'll talk about some practical implications or what employers, we think employers should do or consider doing in light of this decision. So with that said, Larry, why don't we talk real quickly about uh, some background on OSHA's current policy. This is a very recent development that comes along with its revisions to the record-keeping rule. 
the record-keeping rule found under Section 1904 of the Code of Federal Regulations. And at 1904.35, OSHA says that the employer must have a reasonable procedure in place for reporting work-related injuries and illnesses. Now, what it's done is in the preamble to that rule, it has opined that reasonable, in terms of a reasonable procedure for reporting, means that your policies or procedures can't have a deterrent effect upon an employee that would in any way discourage the employee from reporting an injury or an illness such that the purposes of 1904 could be fulfilled. Right. So th there's an evolution here. I don't – I really can't tell you when this concept first came about, but certainly it came up in the context of the ergonomic rulemaking, which was back in uh, Clinton era. Uh, then there was a Fairfax memo around 2012, which talked about the issue of record-keeping and the potential for discrimination, but just simply talked about Section 11C of the OSH Act without providing any details whatsoever. Uh, then along came this rulemaking, which was supposed to be about electronic record-keeping. There was some allegation in, in the context of a public meeting, not even a regular informal hearing, that the collection of this data, which OSHA then intended to make public, would just further discourage reporting of injuries and illnesses. And OSHA seized on that opportunity with the help of the representatives from organized labor to put out a rule that wasn't intended in the first place, and theoretically, what it does is take the principles of Section 11C of the OSHA Act about anti-discrimination, and instead of requiring an employee to file a complaint and then OSHA to investigate it, OSHA created a new remedy under this rule, which would allow OSHA to make its own determination that an employer had allegedly discriminated and then issue a citation. So... So that's where we are with this, and so now we've got a rule that's vague, and it was elaborated on in the preamble to the final rule, which explained to some extent what OSHA thought it meant in the rule, and then the suit was filed, and after the suit was filed, then OSHA took another few months to come up with an interpretive document. So this, this preambulatory language essentially says two things that we're talking about here. One is incentive plans or bonuses or incentives right. for meeting a specific safety and health track record target. For example, uh, lost work days in a given month if, or if there were no incidents of injuries or illnesses in a month, then everyone gets some kind of bonus. That would be an example. Those would be a couple of examples of uh, incentive programs that OSHA has in mind here. The other feature that we're talking about now is drug testing policies where post-accident, let's say there's a policy that an employer has implemented that post-accident an employee will be sent for uh, drug testing or drug and alcohol testing to see if there's any uh, complicity from drugs or alcohol in the causation of the event, of the accident. So I think the, I think the, third, uh, the third point in this stool or leg of this stool is uh, this a policy against uh, discriminating against someone in terms of a disciplinary policy. So it's really drug testing, incentive policies, and disciplinary policies with the three areas. Yeah, good point. So that's where we're at with OSHA having issued this rule, and an employer community filed suit 
I referred to it as an employer community because there was a, there were a large number of plaintiffs who gathered together under one suit. Uh, the lead plaintiff being named Texo, ABC, AGC, a trade association. Others involved were the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, the Associated Builders and Contractors, um, a, an insurance company called Great American Insurance, and several of its corporate uh, insureds of Great American as well, uh, representing the actual employers who may have had policies like these incentive policies or drug alcohol testing policies that were directly implicated in OSHA's uh, preambulatory opinion or interpretation. So they followed suit, and along with that suit, they sought a preliminary injunction. It's the first step that essentially says to the court, look, Your Honor, while we are taking this through litigation, and we all know that litigation can take a long time, there will continue to be damage or the regulated community will continue to suffer under the effects of this rule once it becomes effective, which I believe was December 1. And so so we want a preliminary injunction and joining the rule from taking effect until such time as litigation can take its course. You've had a full opportunity as a court to hear both sides and issue a proper ruling on the merits of our arguments filed by both sides. So when you seek out a preliminary injunction, it's a very high st uh, bar. It's a very high standard for a court to have to uh, meet before it, it's willing to issue a preliminary injunction. Otherwise, it is m the courts are more inclined towards waiting until the full litigation process has taken its uh, time and its process to, to get all the merits out uh, by both sides. <clears throat> the courts want both sides to be heard. So for the courts to issue a preliminary injunction, a movement for a preliminary injunction must show that there's, first, a likelihood that they can prevail on the merits once litigation has fully taken its course. And so for that, there's a little bit of a trial before the trial. You need to put on a lot of evidence showing that the merits of the case suggest the likelihood that you're going to win at the end. So you might as well give us a preliminary injunction now, goes the argument. Then you have to show that if you wait a year or two years for litigation to take its course before issuing a final order, there will be irreparable harm in the meantime. Here, I think that would be easy for the employer community because there will be citations issued. Uh, employers will have to either pay the citations or appeal those citations and take that into consideration as they go forward, or they'll have to change their policies and sometimes eliminate valued practices like an incentive plan uh, in order to comply with a rule that they don't think necessarily could survive a full court challenge. Uh, then there's a balancing between whether or not the harm to the moving party is greater than by, by not issuing a preliminary injunction than it would be to the non-moving party if the injunction weren't issued. Finally, courts have to consider whether or not granting the public uh, the preliminary injunction is within the public interest. And I, and I must say, and I've handled litigation across the country and many a times temporary restraining orders or preliminary injunctions are considered, and one of the issues that's evaluated is this fourth criteria, but it is oftentimes given very little discussion by courts or by the parties. Uh, here, in the context of a preliminary injunction of an OSHA rule, I think this actually becomes much more relevant. The question of granting preliminary injunctions being in the public interest is, is far more important we're talking, where we're talking about a federal regulation, and in particular an OSHA regulation, and it actually becomes one of the central pieces of this case as well. 
So, Larry, with that said, those are the standards by which a court has to uh, evaluate preliminary injunction motions. Uh, <clears throat> what happened here was that the employer community, in its arguments, suggested to the court that, look, we have a trouble understanding how this rule could have taken place in, in the first place, taken effect in the first place. When you look at incentive plans and you look at drug and alcohol testing programs, we all believe that they reduce injuries. We don't even understand why OSHA and, and the employer community are not on the same side on this because these were plans that were implemented with the intent of reducing injuries and illnesses. Uh, when we surveyed our members, both at the associations that were plaintiffs as well as at Great American, we came to the conclusion that 95% of our members have post-accident drug testing policies and about 90%, and it varied a little bit from, from study to study based on the plaintiff, about 90% believed that these programs helped in reducing injuries and illnesses. Likewise, about four out of five employers have safety incentive programs, and about 90% of those believe that uh, safety incentive programs help to reduce injuries and illnesses. OSHA's response to this overwhelming data that the overwhelming majority of the employer community believes, first of all, has these programs in place, incentive programs and drug alcohol testing programs, and believes that they are beneficial in reducing injuries and illnesses. OSHA's response to that was, well, nevertheless, the employers can't show with proof that there's irreparable harm from waiting for litigation to take its course. And the harm that they're alleging is merely conjectural. They conjecture that if they had to temporarily suspend these plans, that injuries and illnesses would go up or that they'd somehow otherwise be irreparably harmed. And they, they haven't been able to establish that with proof. I think there were, there were two aspects to this. Uh, the employer community generally looked at two, two aspects of it. One was the harm to the employees themselves, which indirectly would harm an employer in terms of the uh, ability to continue operations, morale, and all the other issues. And the other was the harm to the employers themselves. With respect to the harm to the employees, uh, although the incentive programs and the drug testing programs were thought to be critical, uh, court basically said you don't have the statistical data to show that if you took those particular elements out by themselves, the programs wouldn't work through some other alternative approach, and that was basically what it came down to. OSHA can make up rules based on it sitting in uh, you know, an ivory tower at the Department of Labor and based on whatever conjecture anybody comes up in a rulemaking comment, but when you actually go to challenge it, then you have to go back and, and scientifically or statistically show there's a problem with the rule. So in this case, there's, there's a couple issues. One was the rulemaking being invalid in its own, uh, and, and the other one was whether OSHA actually has the authority to put out this kind of a regulation when the congressional history seemed to indicate very strongly that Congress specifically withheld from OSHA the authority to issue citations in this area. Uh, so that being said, there's two aspects of this case. One is whether OSHA eventually will prevail or not on the underlying merits. The second point, however, is 
even if industry were to prevail, OSHA has now essentially set out its legal position on these issues, which it could then, if it chose to, enforce under Section 11C by either waiting for an employee complaint or ginning one up. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. But in any case, what the court basically said is, you guys have said you have incentive programs and you have drug testing programs, but you also say they're part of an overall comprehensive program and you haven't been able to statistically show that those particular elements by themselves are, are the critical aspects of it and that you can't find some other alternative way of achieving the same result. Well, that's right, Larry. What the employers had said was we implemented a drug and alcohol testing program, and we started up this incentive program to try and incentivize employees to take a share in the process of reducing injuries and illnesses, and that's what the incentive program is about. And we did a lot of other great things to, in our company to try and reduce the incidences of injuries or illnesses. And that was fatal because they did all of these things in the context of an overall safety and health program. OSHA was able to say, you can't parse out just the incentive program and show that that program had a direct causative uh, connection to the reduction in injuries and illnesses. Even though the employers were able to show that after implementing all of the initiatives together, injuries and illnesses, in fact, went down. OSHA said, yes, but we don't know from what of those many changes you made the reduction occurred or where the cause-effect relationship would have uh, would have lied. And so so because of that, the court said, well, you know, they make a good point at OSHA, the, the ability to show that there was some uh, reduction in injuries and illnesses based on an incentive program would lead me to intuit that there would be irreparable harm if you removed the incentive program, but we can't make that, the, the, the employer community has not made that connection. And I don't know that they could as long as they did two or three things at once. Well, you have a dysfunctional rulemaking process with an ideology in the current administration that this is what they were going to do and they really didn't care what anybody had to say to the contrary. So they didn't give anybody an adequate notice about what it was they were considering in the first place or an adequate opportunity to generate the kind of statistical data that typically would take potentially months, if not years, with studies. And that opportunity was never made available because OSHA didn't tell people what was planned. And once they finally did, it was way inadequate amount of time to actually do anything about it. Well, I think that's right. Uh so as you say, Larry, the the court ruling that just came out from the uh, Northern District of Texas Special Court was really strictly on the issue of the preliminary injunction. What the court has not yet ruled on is the overarching merits that the employer community is bringing to the table. And those are the incredibly powerful arguments uh, that you've uh, related so far, which are, I don't know that there is statutory authority for this, to begin with, that OSHA has the authority to issue a rule like this. And second of all, you know, when they talk about retaliation coming, uh, and the power to regulate uh, retaliation under 11C, it's not clear that things that are dissuasive and therefore anticipate a potential negative outcome for an employee uh, are retaliatory, retaliatory by definition meaning something that happens afterwards. Uh, second of all, I don't think OSHA has made its proper showing that 
in the obverse is true, that incentive programs are, in fact, dissuasive, or the drug-alcohol tests are dissuasive. And that's setting aside the really surprising uh, assertion that OSHA is making, that it is an agency charged with regulating safety and health and that somehow it's antagonistic to drug or alcohol testing in sometimes highly dangerous enterprises or highly dangerous operations. Uh, I think that it should be obvious by now to everybody that the operation of safety-intensive equipment or processes is more dangerous when drugs or alcohol influence an operator, his ability to make decisions, his ability to, to perform his job, his coordination, et cetera. And yet, OSHA believes that when an employer uh, orders an employee to undergo a drug or alcohol test, that that is violative of the OSHA Act because it might dissuade the employee from reporting an injury or illness, knowing that if an employee comes to the employer and says, hey, I just got injured, that they'll go have to get drug tested and there may be the positive uh, presence of drugs or alcohol. The crazy thing about that is that the only person who would, in fact, make that calculation that if I make a complaint to the employer, I'll get tested, and therefore I shouldn't make the report of an injury illness, is the person who believes that his test will come back positive. And that is precisely the person that employers are concerned to monitor and test because that's the person who presents the threat to safety and health. You're right about that. The 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 labor representatives will come back and say there's an issue about embarrassment and false positive, but I guess the, the, the reality of it is the bottom line should be workplace safety, and those are almost red herrings to me is what I would call them. Nothing's perfect in this world, but if you're trying to protect workplace safety and drug testing is critical, then there's going to be some situations in which things aren't perfect and some people might have to go through things they might rather, but that's the cost of working and living in this world. And in this particular scenario, um, what OSHA basically is doing is rulemaking on the fly. First, they say you can't do certain things because they'll discourage or potentially discourage reporting. And then they say, but if there's a state workers' comp plan that requires you to do the testing, then this rule doesn't apply. And then they went ahead further and said, if you have uh, some sort of workers' comp insurance plan, that has the same sort of discount that you get from a state plan for engaging in testing, then again, this rule wouldn't apply because you're not testing because of the injury. You're testing because the state or the insurance compensation plan tells you that's how you can save money, which, which is, of course, is exactly why you save money because you're preventing injuries and illnesses, which is perfectly proving the point. But well, the workers' comp claim is only triggered by the injury. <laughs> yes. That's right. You're right about that, Larry. Uh, but they, they've nevertheless uh, graciously carved out the exception for workers' comp plans that require drug-alcohol testing. Uh, so let's go over what OSHA believes in its preamble to be acceptable styles or elements to drug testing policies. For one thing, if it's a blanket post-accident drug or alcohol testing policy, uh, then OSHA believes that that will deter some people from filing complaints. So it has to be conditional, uh, a, a conditional trigger for sending somebody for a drug and alcohol test. The first is the employer, uh, under its policy, can only issue an order to undergo a drug or alcohol test if the employer has a reasonable belief that an, an impairment by drugs or alcohol 
could have caused the incident. Uh, in other words, it can't just be every time there's an incident or every time there's an injury or illness. Only in instances where injuries or illnesses are such that there's a reasonable belief that which drugs or alcohol could be involved. Which is almost impossible. I mean, you mean it's almost everything. Well, realistically, again, in the ivory tower over at the Department of Labor, they came up with this great idea that if you got a bee sting, somehow you weren't impaired and you didn't accidentally or intentionally swat the beehive because you didn't know what you were doing or you didn't intentionally or negligently encounter the beehive because you weren't paying attention because you were impaired. And they somehow assumed that the bee sting couldn't have been the result of an impairment. And they go down the list and say, musculoskeletal disorder, the same thing. You're talking about a bee sting because OSHA gave that specifically as an example right. of an instance where, look, if there was a bee sting, you wouldn't send somebody to for drug and alcohol testing. That would be an injury that would have nothing to do with drugs or alcohol. And I think you're making the argument that that's not necessarily so. In every scenario they came up and said, this would not likely be the result. You can certainly come up with scenarios where it would have been the result. Where it could have been a result. And, and yeah, or would it could have been, would have been. Uh, and then they give the example of one which would be, which is somebody crashing a forklift into a wall because apparently people don't do that unless they're likely to be impaired. So, But what if they were crashing into a wall because the bee was chasing them? <laughs> All right, so, so I agree with you. The, the examples they gave are not to be taken seriously by reasonable people uh, because drug or alcohol – Drug or alcohol influence could have a causative role in virtually any injury or illness, and we don't know unless we issue the test. That's right. And that's the problem. So, Furthermore, you've got the other issue that if you do it on a selective basis, you're going to be charged with discriminating against employees on some selective basis, which is going to cause you as many problems, if not more. And so there are assume you know obviously this rule is still going to be challenged and it's got a long way to go. There's this pending suit. I anticipate there could be other suits. And so we'll see what happens. But in the meantime, I think employers that have across-the-board drug testing are probably going to continue them. But we'll talk about that. So, so the other element that OSHA and, – and this is the practical takeaway of what employers should do is, at the very least for now, the rule is in effect, and so employers ought to modify their drug testing policies according to these bullets that we're describing here. Uh, the other one – You need to think about that yeah. and be prepared to dispute OSHA's position on these points. Uh, you could make a business decision that you think is better off to do across-the-board drug testing and, and litigate with OSHA. I mean, besides these these particular suits and, and others that will be brought, if OSHA in, decides to actually enforce this rule the way we're talking about and issue citations, then the same challenges are going to take place in a citation contest. Yeah, and the burden may shift, actually, mm -hmm. because OSHA now has the burden of uh, enforcing its rule. Uh, the other is that OSHA believes that a drug test or alcohol test is only fair if everyone involved in the incident were tested and not just uh, one person. So if you take, for example, uh, a forklift bumps into a pole, the pole falls over, hits a table, maybe strikes an employee, you wouldn't just send the forklift operator for testing. Uh, but if you did that, that, that would be an inappropriate drug-alcohol testing policy. You should... Uh, send everyone involved in the incident for testing, including the person standing at the table, because for all OSHA knows, the person standing at the table was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe there was cordoning and he was past the section, uh, the cordon section uh, inappropriately. There may have been someone else who had left debris that the forklift operator was trying to avoid. And so the policy should state that the employer will determine who could have conceivably been uh, involved in the causation of the incident, and all of those people will be tested. Only if you have a language like that 
would it pass muster according to OSHA's more recent interpretation? Right. So given the reverse concept, if somebody runs into an innocent bystander, obviously just testing the innocent bystander and not the person who's operating the forklift is going to be a problem. Right. But that's obvious. Right. But the in, in, in between are people who might have somehow contributed by being in the wrong place or, or whatever else, you know, can happen in a, in a factory environment or any kind of environment. Right. That's right. And what Osh is talking about is obvious. And what they're really saying is this isn't retaliation. We just want you to take your drug testing policy and make sure it's not discriminatorily applied, which has, which is something that OSHA has been given no power to regulate. Uh, so uh, this is a very good point, Larry. Uh, so the other quality that they believe needs to be in a drug alcohol testing policy is that the test must be able to determine whether or not the employee was under the influence of drugs or alcohol at the time of the incident. In other words, they've essentially eradicated drug tests and and only empowered employers to do alcohol tests because some drug tests will yield a positive if a person had taken drugs, let's say, 20 or 30 days earlier, the presence of that drug would still be uh, able to show up on a test result, but would not have influenced the employee's involvement or would not have caused the incident or injury or illness on the day of the test necessarily. And so if that's so, if you're testing for drugs that they might have taken 20 days ago, then it's just uh, not going to inform you of the causation for that accident and you have no right to therefore test uh, because it might dissuade somebody from uh, filing a report of an injury or illness. Never you mind that it might also dissuade them from taking the drugs or alcohol in the first place. Uh, we're really more concerned about whether or not you've cleared the path for them to report an injury or illness. Yeah. Well, that was a path they took in the preamble where they basically said we want you to be sure that you take tests that will show whether the person was under influence at the time. And the subsequent compliance directive, whatever you want to call it, the guidance that came out, they acknowledged that most testing is not really going to be able to do that so when it is available to do that, then they expect you to pay attention to the, the results that would come out of that and take that kind of a test. Um, otherwise, they were kind of vague, but I get the impression that if you do a broad-scale substance abuse test and you find something, you can go right ahead and use it. Um, we'll see what happens in the enforcement process. So for incentive plans, I would say this. Uh, I think the takeaway item from OSHA's interpretation on incentive plans is that the incentive must only reward uh, process for reducing safety uh, and health hazards or uh, some actual uh, outcome that is injury or illness related and not based on reporting. Uh, so when you look at, for example, lost work days, or the reporting uh, or the data that comes out on the OSHA injury and illness record-keeping log, that would not be a suitable basis by OSHA standards for uh, issuance of an incentive bonus. It must be a, a bonus that goes towards process or other things that actually reduce safety uh, and health hazards. So the general principle that they appear to have adopted is that a pure incident-based incentive program that's tied to some sort of a significant material, whatever you want to call it, benefit would be considered barred under this rule because 
essentially what it would say is you are taking away or denying a benefit on the basis of the report of an injury or illness without regard to whether the injury or illness was in connection with an accident that violated a standing rule in the facility. Now, if you tie it to whether it violated a rule in the facility, that's a different story. So those are the things that I think represent relevant takeaways for the time being. And the other is to watch. The other two things I'd say are watch, keep an eye out on this litigation. For and, sure. And, and consider the outcome. Uh, another one, Larry, would be if you find yourself faced with a citation for your drug testing policy or your incentive plan, you should seriously consider what arguments there are. And I think there are some many good ones as to whether or not to fight this one and make OSHA prove up the bona fides of whether or not this rule was properly promulgated and whether they have the enforcement authority to enforce this rule. Uh, the third thing I'd say is when you go forward in the meantime, I think employers need to carefully consider whether or not to change anything about the drug alcohol tests policies or their incentive policy uh, before they, they just start changing around everything that's been successful for them in light of what I think is a highly questionable rule or interpretation of a rule. So I think there's another track here that the litigation will, will certainly proceed, and even if the rule gets set aside, the basic underlying principles established in the preamble and the subsequent guidance apparently reflect the current administration's view on how Section 11C should be enforced. So this is an opportunity for whatever you would like to call it, lobbying, policy influence with the agency, to actually go meet people with the incoming administration and try to change their views on how the law should be interpreted. That's the long-term solution to this problem. Well, that's, that's the issue we wanted to talk about today uh, for today's OSHA 3030. We had one question, and I'm grateful to you for asking it, you in the community. Uh, do we, the, the member of the community has just asked us, the OSHA 3030 is a great concept. How about doing a 3030 focused on the EPA? You should know that we, uh, the OSHA 3030 has given birth, and we are now doing a monthly series called the TOSCA 3030, and that relates to uh, developments uh, in the world of TOSCA law. This is a really uh, developmental area of law, considering that the TOSCA Reform Act was just passed, uh, and, and there are many aspects of the amendment that, that employers need to know about, uh, manufacturers need to know about, et cetera. And we do that every 30 days. The next one is scheduled for January 11th, 2016, and we'll be going through the next year parsing out various sections of the Reform Act and, uh, and talking about them each in their turn. Uh, the next program we have is actually next week, and it is not an OSHA 3030, but it is about OSHA law. It's a, about 30 minutes, 30 to 40 minutes, and we'll be joined uh, by our partner David Sarvati here at Keller and & Heckman, and we're, we're very grateful to have Mark Friedman from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, and we'll be talking about what we think are the law and policy implications of the uh, election result and the new administration under uh, President-elect Trump. Uh, there are a number of OSHA laws and policies and interpretations, as well as enforcement trends that we think are going to be directly impacted by a change in administration from the Obama administration to the elected Trump administration, and so we'll be talking about those. I think that's an incredibly important uh, subject to cover in 30 or 40 minutes 
for members of the OSHA 3030 community and anyone else who you think might be interested, please forward that invitation on as well. Information about that can be found at khlaw.com slash events. Our uh, program will be posted, this program will be posted at khlaw.com slash OSHA 300. Our next program will be on January 25th, and this program will also be available as a podcast on your favorite podcast channel, so check it out. We also have a LinkedIn webpage. Many of you know about it, judging by the uh, massive number of subscribers to that page. That's called the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health Group on LinkedIn, so please join that. And you're welcome to link in as well to Larry Halperin, David Servati, or myself on our individual LinkedIn pages as well. Uh, that's a great way to stay in touch. So thank you all for joining today's OSHA 3030. Uh, thank you, and thank you for spreading the good word and uh, to, to others. And thank you, Larry Halpern, for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully in January. Until all of uh, us meet again, stay safe.